0: And um, next week, Lord willing, we'll begin a study in the uh, letters to the Thessalonians. So if you, uh, if you desire, you can begin reading those um, as you prepare for our study next, w- next Sunday evening. Tonight, as we come to the last of John's letters, I want to remind you of what we saw last week, if you were here with us. Last week, we saw that uh, John had two messages primarily. And the first concerned the interrelationship of love and truth, that love and truth are inseparable. And then John applied that reality in the life of an early church or the life of a particular family as he called upon them not to participate with, uh, with those who oppose the work of the gospel, not to support them in their work, not to be hospitable to them, Uh, because they are opponents of the work of God. So, in a sense, that was a largely negative message. That is, it was a warning to us. Tonight, as we come to 3 John, we're going to see the flip side of that, where John is going to encourage a faithful Christian, a man named Gaius, and he's going to likewise encourage us to participate in faithful works, to participate in gospel works. He's going to show us how we might do that. So if you found your place in 3 John, would you follow along with me as I read, and I'll read the whole letter. The Elder to the Beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. Beloved, I pray that all may go well with you, and that you may be in good health, as it goes well with your soul. For I rejoiced greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you are walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone and from the truth itself. We also add our testimony, and you know that our testimony is true. I had much to write to you, but I would rather not write with pen and ink. I hope to see you soon, and we will talk face to face. Peace be to you. The friends greet you. Greet the friends, each by name. Father in heaven, as we come before you this evening and we come to your word, we pray that you would work in our hearts through your word you would send your spirit to do a work of illumination to apply these things to our hearts and our minds that we might hear the word and be faithful to it father we pray that you would teach us how to participate in your work the work that you are doing and that you will surely bring to completion in this world may we be faithful participants O lord as we learn from your word how we might do that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Before we begin, I want to say a little bit about hospitality, particularly about the idea of hospitality in the ancient world. You see, in our own time, we have a whole industry we call the hospitality industry. Uh, The industry basically focuses on providing those services that would attract people to a particular locale, and would provide for their daily needs while they're there. Not just the things they need, but the things that they'd like. And so you can see everything from hotels to amusement parks and restaurants all fall within this idea of the hospitality industry. But there was no such industry, no major hospitality industry in the ancient world. People were dependent upon the hospitality that they would receive from strangers when they were traveling through the Roman world. There were inns, and there were places for people to stay, but they weren't reputable places. They were rather seedy, like, uh, like a seedy motel, a place you wouldn't really want to frequent or spend any time. And so travelers in that time would come into a town, and they would hope that some person might open their home to them. Some stranger might allow them uh, to stay with them, to be their guest. They provide food for them, and so on and so forth. And this certainly was true for the early Christians when they traveled throughout the Roman world as they were spreading the gospel, as they were carrying out the mission that Christ had given his disciples. They would have depended upon the hospitality of strangers. And as time passed, those strangers would become friends, maybe even fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. And um, more missionaries would be trained up, more missionaries would be sent out, and they would need some kind of a recommendation or some kind of uh, perhaps a letter that they might carry with them commending them to a church in another town so that as they come into that town as a stranger they have a recommendation from someone who is known say John who is known to Gaius commending perhaps Demetrius in this letter to Gaius as a faithful worker and someone who should receive hospitality from him this kind of practice was common in the ancient world and it's probably what we're seeing here in third john is some kind of a letter of recommendation we can't know that for sure but it's a uh, reasonable guess and in this practice of hospitality what happens according to bruce molina is that an outsider goes through a process whereby his status is changed from that of a stranger to a guest so once someone experiences hospitality they're no longer a stranger and they would expect that they would receive that same kind of hospitality on any particular visit to that town. It also, as we talked about last week, meant that um, the host would be lending his credibility in some sense to his guest. If that host was a respected member of the community, say in Ephesus, and someone came into his home, the people of Ephesus would evaluate that stranger based on his host's reputation that host had a positive reputation, they would probably assume, well, this traveler must be a respectable person. And that would have been true in the church, too. That's why in Second John we saw that warning not to participate, uh, not to even open your home to these, uh, these false teachers because unwittingly you lend your credibility to them in a way where their lies, their deceits, are supported by your hospitality, you see. This is the idea, uh, the way that they thought about hospitality in the early church and in the early Roman world. And so John is writing another letter, which seems to uh, be addressing this kind of situation, this kind of historical context, where he's calling upon Gaius to continue to show hospitality to those who are or were strangers to him, but who are not strangers within the broader church. Fellow Christians and brothers, and to receive them and to continue participating in the work that they have. So, with that context, let's look at the text and see um, see how John in, would encourage us to participate in faithful work with others. Or put another way, to find our place, to find our place in a faithful work. Now notice how John opens this letter. It's a typical greeting, as we saw last week. He introduces himself as the elder the same as he did in Second John. And he writes to one whom he calls beloved, the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. We saw that same kind of language, the elder to the elect lady in Second John and her children whom I love in truth. And here, John doesn't say anything more about this point. He simply moves on with expresses of, uh, of well wishes for Gaius. He says, Beloved, I pray that all may go well with you that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. Whether Gaius was given to ill health, we can't say, but it's possible that he had frequent bouts with uh, various illnesses. And so John wishes, naturally, that he would experience good health and that things would be well with him. Or perhaps there was simply uh, some kind of plague or disease that was common in those days, and John is expressing his wish that Gaius should be spared from this. But more importantly, John is going to recognize, and he does recognize, that uh, Gaius has the more important health, the health that matters. that is a spiritual health, his healthy soul. And we can see that in what John says in the following verse, in verse 3. For I rejoiced greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you are walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. John rejoices. John is overjoyed to find that Gaius is maintaining his commitment to the true gospel. Remember the context. John is writing to people who have seen false teachers arise in their midst, begin preaching and teaching false doctrines, and then go out, leading perhaps others in their wake, unsettling the church and causing all sorts of problems. And Gaius has remained firm. And John is rejoicing. John calls him one of his children, indicating most likely that John played a pivotal role in Gaius coming to faith or in Gaius growing as a disciple. John regards Gaius as one of his children in the faith, and he's simply overjoyed to hear of the health of his spirit, the health of his soul, that this is a man who has remained steadfast, who has held fast to the truth as he received it. He is indeed one who is walking in the truth. And so John writes also to then exhort him to continue in his faithful work. In fact, he has three exhortations that we're going to see in this text, and it really will frame, it'll provide the outline for this passage. The first one you'll see there in verse 8, where he tells him to support people like these faithful workers, support them and be a fellow worker with them. The second two come in verse 11. Verse 11, the first half, uh, an admonition not to imitate evil, which really follows from the example we're going to see in verse 9 through 10. And then the third is to imitate good. And John, again, will put forward an example with regard to Demetrius as someone who is worthy of imitation. So we have three exhortations. Support faithful workers, don't imitate evil, and imitate good. We're going to see then what these look like in the context of Gaius' life and then what they would look like in our context as well. So first John exhorts Gaius to support the work of those who are faithful workers. But before he does this, he's going to reframe his perspective. He's going to encourage John to look at things in a particular encourage Gaius to look at things in a particular way so that he would be given to this kind of support. Look at what he says in verse 5, beloved, it is a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are. And so the first way in which he begins to reframe his perspective is by showing him that though these people are strangers, they are also at once his brothers. He doesn't personally know them, but in terms of their shared Christian faith, the people who Gaius has gone to great lengths to support are part of his family. They are brothers in Christ. And so he's exhorted to continue to serve them, even as he's commended for having already gone to great lengths, making great efforts to serve them. John wants them to know, this is a faithful thing. This is a good thing. And again, think about that background context. Think about what's gone on in this early church. Certainly there would have, uh, among the false teachers, among Um, Those who were following them, there would have been those who were saying, you don't want to participate with those people. You don't want to throw in your lot with them. And John wants them to know, no, what you're doing is indeed a faithful work. Keep on doing what you've been doing. Keep on supporting these brothers, strangers as they are. And he wants Gaius to know how these brothers have commended him to the church where John is. He describes them as those who testified to your love before the church. In this letter so far, John has shown us his character, as he's shown us again and again in his letters. And he's also here showing us the character of these fellow workers, these these men who Gaius has served. That they're not people who are primarily concerned about themselves and about their own well-being and their own needs. These are people who are concerned for others. And that concern manifests itself in the fact that they gave a good testimony concerning Gaius. It's a simple thing. But it does show that these are people who are concerned with someone else. They're concerned to, uh, to honor those who are worthy of honor. They're concerned to uh, hold forth those who are deserving of um, that kind of encouragement and that kind of commendation. And so they've borne witness in their church concerning the love that Gaius showed to them. Testified to your love before the church. This is going to be important because we're going to see a sharp contrast between this group and Diotrephes, who we'll encounter in verse 9 through 10. So John tells him, you will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God. It, it, think about this situation. You have these, these uh, missionaries. Let's just call them missionaries. It'll make, make the most sense. They've come to this church. They've met with Gaius. They've received hospitality from Gaius. Now they've returned to John, where John is, and they've borne witness concerning what's going on in that particular town. And now they're preparing to go on and do another work, but not just to uh, come back to Gaius to return back to John again, but rather to go to Gaius and go on further, to continue that, that work and continue their journey further on so that they might testify concerning the gospel of grace. And so John wants Gaius to extend that same hospitality to them, saying, they have gone out for the sake of the name. Notice how he uh, tells them, send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God. These these men are servants. And yet, John would have Gaius treat them with the the, the same hospitality that he would, let's, let's say, receive our Lord Jesus Christ with. Send them on their way in a manner worthy of God. And of course... Gaius wouldn't have the means to do all that he would imagine would be worthy of the holy God. And yet, this is the kind of framing perspective. This is the honor that John encourages him to accord to these missionaries. Treat them in this way. Send them on their journey as if you were, um, as if you were receiving God himself. For they have gone out for the sake of the name. That is, they have gone out for the sake of the gospel to proclaim the name of Jesus Christ and they haven't accepted anything from gentiles here john is not using gentile in a in its uh more literal sense but rather in a figurative sense he's not saying that they they only receive things from people who are ethnically jewish but he's using the term gentile to refer to the unbelieving world this was a rather common way to speak in the early church and it's it's natural and it's right considering what we're taught by the apostles that those who are in christ those who have the faith of Abraham, are the true children of Abraham, are the true Israel. The Gentiles are the unbelieving world. And these faithful teachers, these missionaries, they also show their character by not accepting anything from the unbelieving world. That is, they're not trying to fulfill their mission in a way that suggests maybe they're greedy, maybe they're seeking to line their pockets, maybe they're seeking to pad their wallets, No, these men are really genuinely concerned to faithfully carry out the work they've received from Christ. And so they're entirely dependent upon the hospitality of Christians. And so John encourages Gaius to show them this hospitality. Therefore, he says, we ought to support people like these. People who have this kind of character, people who minister in this kind of way, are worthy of support. Whatever support we are able within our means to lend to them, whether that's hospitality, simply giving someone a room, which was very common in this context, or whether that's partnering with faithful missionaries in a financial way, whether it's simply by praying for those who are laboring in difficult contexts. In whatever way that God allows us and permits us and gives us the ability to, we ought to partner with people that like these. They are deserving they are worthy of that kind of support and what does that mean for us this is the upshot of it we become partners with them we become fellow workers for the truth it's an amazing idea we sometimes think about missionaries we think of them as being on the front line as being uh, right in the thick of things and yet those people who are holding the rope as it were They are partners in that work. William Carey, when he went to India as a missionary in the, uh, I suppose it was the 1700s, he said to his pastor, uh, Andrew Fuller, that he wanted him to hold the rope for him. That is, he was going to remain in England, and he needed to be the one who was providing that support from afar, both in prayer and both in financial means, and William Carey needed those things. He wasn't a lone ranger who went to india and did all the work alone he needed the support of others he did not become the father of modern missions on his own and the same is true today we support people who faithfully carry out the work of the gospel and in that we become partners with them that's the way in which we are able to participate in that work even if we're not able to go John wants to encourage us, just as he's encouraged Gaius, to participate in such faithful works in this way, in whatever way that we are within our means, within the means that God has given us. There's another man, though, that we need to meet. His name is Diotrephes, and he is an example of what not to do. The exhortation comes in verse 11, do not imitate evil. We're going to see a particular example of what it looks like to be evil In Diotrephes, we're not to be like him. John writes, I've written something to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. So if I come, I will bring up what he is doing, talking wicked nonsense against us. And not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers and also stops those who want to and puts them out of the church. Now, as John looks at Diotrephes and considers his actions and his behavior... He highlights certain things. This is a man who does not acknowledge the authority of the apostles. John says he doesn't acknowledge our authority. This is a man who is slanderous. He bears false witness against his neighbor. That's the idea that's conveyed in what John says when he says he's talking wicked nonsense against us. He's bringing up all kinds of accusations against the apostles, against uh, John and his associates. And it's all slander. It's all nonsense. He's one who refuses to show hospitality to Christian brothers. He won't receive them. He won't welcome them. He refuses to do so. But he's not content with any of these things. Notice how John characterizes this man as one who has an insatiable appetite for wickedness. He's not content with any of those things. He adds to them all. That he stops others from showing hospitality to people who deserve it. And he even goes so far as to put them out of the church. This is a picture of a church that has some serious problems. There is a man in this church, Diotrephes, who has basically taken over the place. And has asserted himself as an authoritarian dictator. A man who thinks that he is the one who can simply put people out of the church. As he wills. A man who won't even submit to the authority of the apostles, but would rather be the one who's an authority over all. Obviously, this is a man who's succeeded in some ways. People must be recognizing his authority in some way. Otherwise, he wouldn't be able to do these things that John says he's doing. This is a man you don't want to be around. And yet, sadly, this kind of behavior shows up all the time in churches. Now, there are measures that we've talked about in previous weeks whereby we might exercise what's called church discipline, whereby someone might be removed from a church. But I made the point in a previous sermon, and I'll make it again tonight, that no individual has the authority to put someone out of the church. Simply not given to a single individual. Nobody can be put out of a church except by the gathered congregation putting the person out of the church. And only after a process that was outlined by our Lord in Matthew 18, whereby the offending brother, the offending sister, is, is confronted in private and then confronted with two or three witnesses who can independently substantiate the accusation. And then, only then, when the person is unrepentant, can that person, in the context of the gathered congregation, be put out of the church. It's a process that is marked by grace. A process that is marked by patience. It's a process that ultimately is overseen by our Lord Jesus Christ. One that he put into place. And one that he put his stamp of authority over. But one that he does not invest in the hands of any single individual. And even John recognizes that. Look at the way that John speaks about diatrophies. He doesn't say anything like, Put him out of the church. This man shouldn't be leading the church. When I come, I'll bring up what he's doing. I'll follow the process outlined by the Lord. This is a man who is an apostle with authority, and yet he says, I'll put it before the church. And then we'll deal with it in the appropriate way. John doesn't respond and retaliate to diatrophies in kind. He doesn't respond to his authoritarian nonsense, his dictatorial ways, by becoming a dictator himself, but rather by submitting himself to the process that Christ gave and by trusting it. But that doesn't mean he simply lets the thing lie. He does give instructions. Don't be like this man and know that I I will come if the Lord allows he desire to come and to deal with the situation in the gathered congregation. Here we have in Diotrephes a self-seeker a proud and vain man this is where all of this wickedness flows from it flows from the fact that he is one who likes to put himself first he is not a humble man he is not a servant he is one that rather seeks to be served rather seeks to be in charge that's what makes sense of all this not all this craziness Why would a man say, don't show hospitality to those people? Don't do good things. I'm going to kick you out of the church if you do. Unless somehow he perceived that these people were a threat to his power. These people were a threat to his preeminence. That's where it all stems from. This is a man who likes to be first. It's not the way of our Lord. It's not the way that John models. It's not the way that John would have us uh, live our own lives. Turn back with me to Mark chapter 10, Mark 10.35. John learned this lesson from Jesus himself. I want you to see this. In Mark 10.35, John and his brother James had this encounter with our Lord. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. He said to them, What do you want me to do for you? They said to him, grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. They want the positions of preeminence. They want to be right and left when Jesus comes into his kingdom. And Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? Or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? Jesus says, you don't know what you're asking for. He's talking about the cross. Are you able to be at my right and left? When I come into my kingdom. And they don't know what he's talking about, so in verse thirty nine they say, We are able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink you will drink, and with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. In other words, you will learn service, you will learn to humble yourselves, but not now. Verse forty But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life. As a ransom for many. You see what Jesus is teaching John and James and his disciples? That though they've been called into this privileged position as apostles, as disciples in the inner circle of our Lord, nevertheless, what they need to learn is that greatness in the kingdom of heaven is not about putting oneself first, but about putting oneself last. Greatness is not about being served, greatness is about becoming a servant. Jesus calls his disciples to learn to serve others. And this requires humility. This requires us to think of others as more important than ourselves. But it's the very example that Jesus set for us in saving us. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. No one ever has been or ever will be more worthy of all praise and every honor. And yet Jesus Christ... Humbled himself to the point of death on a cross. Humbled himself to the lowest point for our sakes, to serve us. And he calls us to live that same kind of life. It's very clear in 3 John that Diotrephes knows nothing of this. Diotrephes does not demonstrate the character that one expects of a true and faithful Christian. He's putting people out of the church. But in the end, he's really the one that deserves to be put out of the church. And he will be dealt with when John comes, but not by John, but in the gathered congregation. We're not to be like that kind of person. We're not to imitate that person. And we would be tempted to do so because very often in our world, we see that those kinds of persons seem to get ahead and we're told that That's the way to get ahead in the end. We live in a dog-eat-dog world. We live in a world where the person who is strong is the person who takes, the person who asserts himself, the person who puts himself forward always. That's the person who will succeed. That's the person who will be the great man. And we think, well, that's what we need to do if we would aspire to that position. But the one who is highly exalted, who stands at the Father's right hand, did not come to that position by exalting himself but by humbling himself and being exalted by the father and so it must be with every disciple of christ don't imitate the diatrophies of the world but imitate good whoever does good is from god whoever does evil has not seen god here john is giving us this third exhortation that those who act like christ show in their lives the marks of a true and faithful Christian. These are the people who demonstrate that they really have been changed by Christ. I'm not talking about someone who is, uh, is very charitable, who gives a great deal of their time to charitable causes, for instance. I'm talking about someone who shows that kind of ethic consistently in his life that can only be explained by a work of Christ in that person. By the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit, to make that person humble, to make that person loving, to make that person sacrificial, is a work I mentioned earlier. A work of historical fiction by Bruce Longenecker. It's called uh, "The Lost Letters of Pergamum," and it, in this work, this New Testament scholar imagines uh, correspondence, imagines letters that might that could have been written between Luke the author of the gospel, and Antipas. And I, I reference it not because, uh, well, the work is fictional, of course, but I reference it because it's based on historical research and it does reconstruct the culture of ancient, the ancient Roman world with accuracy. And at one point in this exchange, Antipas, the main, one of the main characters, is amazed by the generosity of a Christian named Simon. He thought he had never seen anything like it. And I was so struck by the way that Longenecker framed Luke's response. He writes, Antonius' own kindness towards Simon is certainly exceptional in the empire, not least since the social, economic, and ethnic profiles of the two men are dramatically different. But I would beg to differ with you regarding Antonius' unprecedented act of kindness, as you call it. Similar acts are displayed in Christian communities throughout the empire. Granted, not many Christians are in a position to do as much for a person in need as Antonius is, with his vast resources, but Antonius' actions are themselves merely reflections of the beneficence of the one we worship, Jesus Christ. His life story modeled beneficence toward others, and he called his followers to pattern their lives on his own. Both John and I agree wholeheartedly on these points, as do most Christians. Antonius' act of benevolence is outweighed by the extent and significance of Jesus' benevolence, because it was Jesus' act of kindness that reveals, we believe, the very heart of the sovereign God and judge of this world. And of course, I make the point again that that letter was only imagined by the author, Bruce Longenecker. And yet it does convey a truth that when the gospel took root in the Roman world, communities of Christians that arose demonstrated great and sacrificial love day in and day out, things that to the rest of the Roman world looked like they were impossible things, unimaginable acts of charity, unprecedented things, and yet just another day in the life of an ordinary Christian in the early church. That's the kind of life that Jesus calls us to and enables us to live by. And it's a mark when we live that life that we indeed are from God. And when we see people living that kind of life, we ought to imitate them because they are imitating our Lord. Now recall John's words from 1 John. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. 1 John 4.10. And in verse 19 of that same chapter, we love because He first loved us. The one who does good in this way is from God. Demetrius, unlike Diotrephes, Demetrius who we encounter here in verse 12, perhaps the messenger with this letter in hand, unlike Diotrephes, he had received a good testimony. He had received such a testimony. He was the kind of person that was worthy of imitation. And there were many others. And John called upon Gaius and he calls upon us to find such people as this in our lives and to imitate them. For us, we are to imitate those who demonstrate sacrificial and humble love for others in their lives just as they are imitators of Christ. Now, with all of those ideas in mind, we are prepared to answer that question with which I began, is how might we find our place in a faithful work? How might we become participants in a faithful work? And here, let me give you three examples points to consider, or three points of encouragement. As you seek your place in a faithful work, consider your gifting, consider your position, and consider others before yourself. Consider your gifting, consider your positioning, and consider others before yourself. Let me explain what I mean by each of these. First, sometimes we maybe not quite to the extent of diatrophies, but in in the same manner, we feel like we want to be preeminent. We want to be in front. And so we ignore our gifting, and we uh, seek a position that uh, where we see other people seem to be in the limelight, seem to be forward, seem to be front and center. We want to be up where they are, regardless of whether or not God has gifted us for that kind of work. I know that Every pastor or would-be pastor goes through a season like this thinking I certainly would like to be that guy standing up there behind the pulpit preaching it Sunday morning, Sunday evening and so on and so forth. Regardless of whether I have the training or the gifting or the ability to do that. Regardless of whether or not God has called me to this place. And we can find all sorts of other things where people simply want to be front and center. I remember some years ago listening to an interview of a candidate for, uh, for some elected office. And the interviewer simply asked him, why should you be running in this race against this other person who holds all of the same positions as you? And essentially, the, the man had no answer. And so the interviewer put it back to him. "Is basically, you just want to be there. Your answer to that question is, I just want the job, which is not really a good argument to would-be voters for why they should elect someone to a position that we call Uh, a public servant. (laughs) I'm not seeking that office. Basically, he was confessing he wasn't seeking that office in order to serve, but because he wanted the honors that came with it. And so we forget our gifting. We forget our calling. We forget what the purpose of that thing is, of that job, that task. That it's not so that we might be served, but that we might serve others. And so for some of us, our gifting may be something that puts us in the background may be something that uh, puts us out of sight of most people. And that's a true and faithful work. There were people who were missionaries who were going to go on to the uh, front lines of uh, doing mission in the Roman world. And Gaius's position and Gaius's gifting was that he was able to give them a the room, give them a meal, send them on their way. And John says, you're a participant in that work. So consider what, where God has gifted us and consider where he's positioned us. When we think about positioning, sometimes people think, well, I would, I would love more than anything to go overseas and be a missionary. Okay, well, where do you want to go? I'd love to go to uh, this place in Africa in the jungle, okay? Do you speak uh, any other languages? No, don't know a language. Where, where are you now? Do you share the gospel with your neighbors? No, I've never, I'm too afraid to share the gospel you see that you start to uncover that maybe God has positioned you in this place and not that place so that you might grow here and you might develop here and that you might serve here. and That you might also support others who are gifted and equipped to go and do that faithful work in that place. Consider your positioning. Consider your calling is the way that Paul would put it in 1 Corinthians. Consider where you were, your station in life, when Christ called you to himself some in the early Roman world were slaves some were the owners of slaves quite frankly quite honestly God had called each of them into this new community into this new family and each of them was uniquely positioned in a particular place where they might serve the cause of the gospel in the way that God in the place that God had positioned them so it is for us some of us work in industry some of us work in ministry Some of us are retired some of us maybe are hoping for a job wherever we are currently positioned wherever god has placed us there is a work to be done there is a gift that he has given us and there is a place where he has placed us we ought to give consideration to those things as we consider how we might participate in this bigger work that god is doing and then, finally most importantly we must consider others before ourselves. We must consider others. And this consideration can never end. We can constantly be thinking about the way that God has gifted others and the way that we might support them to fulfill their giftedness in the work to which God has called them. We ought to constantly be thinking about where God has positioned others and the way that we might support them and encourage them in the work to which God has called them. God has gifted some people with an ability to learn languages. God has gifted some people with uh, ability to uh, perform jobs that might allow them to gain access into countries that would otherwise be closed to them. God has gifted some Christians with an ability to study deeply in his word. And he has gifted some Christians with a hospitable heart, a servant's heart, to show grace to others. It's not about just asking what gifts and positioning he's given to us, but where has he gifted and positioned others, and how how might we come alongside and help those people and so become participants in the work that God has given to them so we might be fellow workers for the truth. And all the while, we're learning to look away from ourselves, and we're learning to look toward others, to lift others up, to put others before us, to serve their needs. There were these great missionaries in the early church. We don't even know their names. But they were going on to do a great work. But you know what? They needed things. They needed roofs. They needed clothes. They needed food. Gaius had a roof and clothing and food. He was able to participate in that work by providing what he had for the sake of the gospel. Put it quite frankly, or in this way, people came to faith almost certainly because Gaius gave a roof and food and clothing to faithful workers for the sake of the gospel. That will not be forgotten. His name here is recorded in scripture for us. and That was his work. So let us be that kind of people as well. As we consider our place in God's work, let us consider where he's positioned us, how he's gifted us, and how we might encourage and support and help others so that we might be participants in the work of the kingdom of Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, in the end, ultimately, all praise and glory For this great and mighty work of the gospel going forth to the end of the earth is due to you. It's due to you for the work that you've done. For if you had not sent your son to accomplish our redemption, there would be nothing to proclaim to the end of the earth. If you had not sent your spirit to apply salvation to our hearts, we would not be able to proclaim it to anyone near or far if you had not sent your spirit to cause the gospel to go forth from Jerusalem to Judea to the end of the earth, then no one of these works could have ever succeeded. So we praise you, Lord, and we thank you. And we humbly ask that you would allow us to simply join the many others who have been faithful participants in this great work of yours, that we might faithfully promote the gospel in our neighborhood in our community, in our region, and in our world as we partner with those who are doing that same work. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.